Father, that message, whether we are together in brick and mortar or together across the perplexity of the internet and light waves and sound waves, living rooms and dens, all across the world, Lord, from America to India, Lord, we're gathered together. That message alone is worth our meeting. Despite inconvenience, discomfort, you walked into our world and touched us. Far worse than lepers, we were diseased to the core. No hope, you touched us. You changed our destiny from hell to heaven, from guilty to pardoned. And yes, a thousand yeses, it is worth today gathering for that. I pray for someone who doesn't yet know you, God, how tender you are toward them, how willing, how able you are to transform them. So would you use these unbelievably feeble words based on the immeasurable power of your word to ignite hope. We pray always, Lord, today for even hope to be given medically, scientifically for the removal, the submission of the virus, return of the economy, jobs, some degree of sanity to those who are struggling with depression. Father, would you be mercy to those who don't deserve mercy? Glorify yourself for your kindness and helping us as a nation and all nations to know that God has stepped into our quarantine and given us a new chance and a new day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I was reading this week of why people love mysteries, namely mystery books, mystery movies, and the answer was actually a combination of answers. Some people like the, the, cerebr the cerebral aspect, cerebral, the cerebr cerebral aspect of mysteries, that is, they love the chase. They love to see the clues along the mystery path. Then other people enjoy mysteries to see what motivates human beings to behave as they do. That's what interests them about mysteries. And then everyone that was surveyed said they love because the tension is eventually figured out and justice is carried out. If you're going to enjoy the portion of Scripture that I'm looking at today, we're looking at together, you're going to have to fall in love with the concept of the biblical word of mystery because Paul mentions it four times in our ten verses. Surely you've Ephesians 3, verse 2, you have heard about the mystery made known to me. Verse 4, you'll be able to understand the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery is through the gospel. And verse 8, this grace was given to me to make plain to everyone the mystery. This mystery was a game changer in Paul's life. He left his job over that mystery he took great risk because of that mystery. He endured prison because of that mystery. And he died defending that 
mystery. And normally statements like that don't make a sense. Like I'm going to make a job change because of a mystery. I'm going to sacrifice everything I know for a mystery. I'm going to give my life for a mystery. Strange talking like that. But not so for Paul because he understood the mystery. This is the beautiful, the, the beautiful thing about biblical mystery. It's understandable. Mystery simply means that something that was not revealed has now been revealed. Like God's not playing games with us. It's just that he operates on a different calendar than we do. And so he says it was not time to reveal it and now it's time to reveal it. This mystery which for ages past was kept hidden has now been revealed. So biblical mysteries are something that are sure, they're certain, they're not doubtful, but they simply are revealed in a new time and a new place. And another thing that makes biblical mystery beautiful is how stunning it is when it is finally revealed. Um, if a wealthy man died and left his housekeeper of 30 years $10 million, we would just shake our heads and say, that's a mystery. But we wouldn't say it's a mystery like I don't understand what just happened. You clearly understand what just happened. She got $10 million and before that she had $100 to her name. But what is the mystery about it is how stunning his generosity is. So when you think of biblical mystery, it's something that you weren't expecting. And then when you see it, it's far more stunning than you could have ever imagined. So what is the mystery that changed Paul's life? He says it in four ways in Ephesians 3. First is the mystery of Christ himself. In Ephesians 3 verse 4, and regarding this, then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of who? Christ. Which was not made known to people in other generations, that has now been made, revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Well, how is Christ a mystery? Well, almost in every way. Because the Jews, when they hear the name Christ, they're thinking that Greek name for Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent, Messiah, King. So they're thinking all of their life, we've been waiting for this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed King, this man anointed by heaven, sent. They were looking for him to be a deliverer. You can look at many of the statements made about this Christ in the Old Testament. It speaks about how strong he is, how powerful he is. So these Jews in the first century were thinking this Christ is going to overthrow our arch enemies, the Romans. And all of a sudden, their king, their Messiah is born in an obscure village to poor parents. And he comes out preaching things like, forgive your enemies. This was a mystery to them. How could their king and their Messiah, their Christ, be focused on Listen, you ask a Jew in the first century, what is my main problem? They're going to tell you, Romans. Jesus comes along, their king, their Christ, and says, your main problem is your heart, your sin. There was a mystery to them. They were looking, that's the problem. Jesus said, no, that's the problem. Some of you are watching today, and, and I want to tell you, you are missing God because you we're expecting him to be different 
than you thought. You grew up thinking, listening to friends or family, books, culture say God is like this. And now maybe through this ministry or other things that have happened during this time of pandemic, you were beginning to listen. You say, wow, God's a lot different than I thought. That's the way the Jews were. And when God was calling them to adjust, they wouldn't adjust. God is calling you to adjust to the mystery that this is who God really is. Mystery number two was the raising up of the church. That's the, the mystery that just blew Paul away. This mystery is that through the gospel about Christ, the Gentiles are heirs Gentiles would be anybody who's not a Jew. Just think nations outside of Israel. The nations outside of Israel are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise that is in Christ Jesus. Some people, when they're teaching on this, they say the mystery of the gospel in regard to Jews and Gentiles is that God started loving Gentiles, the other nations. Wrong. There are so many hints in the Old Testament that he always loved Gentiles. He always loved the nations, but he was simply going to get to them through a chosen nation of Israel. So with the coming of Christ, there was an announcement of a new nation. No longer was God going to work in a national setting like Israel His new work was going to be an international work brought together not under geographical boundaries but under a spiritual canopy called Jesus Christ. No longer national in scope but international with Christ as the head of this new nation. And the Jews couldn't couldn't grasp this. They would say, okay, okay, I will buy into this that... um, Okay, God loves other nations. They can come in, but they have to sit and coach while we sit in first class. And Jesus came along, the New Testament comes along and says, everybody sits in first class. That was hard for them to grasp. That was a mystery. How in the world we've been hanging with God for 4,000 or 2,000, whatever you where you want to name it, thousands of years, and now these non-Jews, other nations come, and look what God says to them. You are, all of you are sharers together in the promise. (laughs) Listen, you know what this means? This is good news for us. This is good news for America. Every promise that was made in the Old Testament to Israel is mine. When, when God tells Israel, you're going to inherit all of the earth, that's for me, a non-Jew. Jews just couldn't grasp that. We've been serving you for 2,000 years, and these people who come day one, they get the same benefits. That's a mystery. It's almost like you could think about it in this way. You've got a, a medical doctor in New York City giving his life for patients and in the process contracts COVID-19 and is dying. But he's a believer. 
He's been following Christ all his life, and his, his family is sad, but they are hopeful as they surround his bed. And at the same time, there is a, a scientist in Wuhan, China, contracts the virus, and he's dying. But this scientist was a man who knew from the beginning that this disease was spreading beyond of the laboratory where they were studying it and told no one. And somebody, he's filled with remorse and sorrow, and a missionary there in China leads him to Christ. And so you've got this medical doctor who's loved the Lord all his life in New York dying, and you've got this deceiver in China on all his life has denied God and has now been responsible for thousands of deaths around the world. And he receives Christ, and they get the same promises. There's a lot of people say, I don't get that. That's the gospel. That's the mystery of the gospel right there. We all get the same promises by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I want everyone. Look at that, Ephesians 3, 9. I want everyone. God wants everyone to hear about this mystery. It is a worldwide thing that God is doing. So, mystery number three. The mystery of Paul himself. Ephesians 3, verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. What's he talking about? Well, he's admitting, he's thinking about it, his testimony, his past, that part of his life when every fiber of his being hated Jesus Christ and Christ's church. And he did everything he could to stop the voice of Christ by stopping the people of Christ, imprisoning, killing believers. And on one of his Christian hunting excursions, God stops him. Broad daylight, shine, the sun, Christ shines brighter than the sun. And all of a sudden he sees who the king of the universe is, Jesus Christ, who he was trying to snuff out. And he hears from Christ himself. I want to forgive you, and I want to save you. Jesus opened Paul's eyes to the insanity of his, the trajectory of his life and his willingness to make him new. In that day, the Apostle Paul had every sin in his heart erased, every stain of evil removed that day. And not only did Christ welcome him and receive him, but he filled him with enormous power to be the leader of the proclamation of this message around the world. Look how Paul says it. I became a servant. This is on the day he got saved with no training. I became a servant of this gospel. This was a worldwide commission. By the gift of Christ's grace given to me through the working of his power. And I beg you, you read the book of Acts or you read many of the statements that Paul makes in his letters to the churches of the way the power of God fell on his life. It's a sermon in itself. But he just alludes to it here. Jesus didn't just call me, forgive me, but he commissioned me and gave me great power. And he labels all of this as grace. I, was a, I spent my life declaring war against Jesus, and now I'm a preacher 
of Jesus and that's grace. And the wonderful thing about Paul is he never got over this grace. That's how you have a, a lifetime ministry of serving the Lord. You just never forget where you, where you came from. Paul's voice of amazement is even greater in the next verse. Let me just read this. The mighty power of God enables weak vessels to proclaim the glories of Christ with great effectiveness. Paul learned this in his life. The mighty power of God enables weak vessels to proclaim the glories of Christ with great effectiveness. The only hope that I'm on this stage today is that reality right there. (sighs) Love that. Ephesians 3 verse 8, Paul's amazement of God's grace increases. Although I am less... Less than, least, less than the least. That's, you get the number one category of the least right here. I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace, there it is again. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. You know, when Paul says, I am the less, less than the least, number one on the bad list, less than, or whatever you say, find number one, I'm below that. I think of that statement made by Jim Elliott long ago. You can read about it in Gates of Splendor and other devotions that he wrote. Jim Elliott was a missionary to South America in 1927 to 1956. That, that brief life, that young age, should send a clue to you that it was not God's will that this man live a long time. Not many missionaries in Christian history, Jim, to South America, catch my attention like like Jim Elliott. He, along with four missionaries, were speared to death on a beach in South America by once savage men who, after that killing, and their wives, these missionaries' wives, moved to that area to continue preaching. These savages came to Christ. And I look at Jim Elliott giving up the American dream, giving up all worldly pleasures, moving to South America to give his life. I read his journals, and I found very few people who love the Lord with all their heart like Jim Elliott and love the world more than themselves like Jim Elliott. And what did Jim Elliott think about himself? He tells us. I'm just a nobody trying to exalt a somebody. That's how Paul felt about himself. I am less than least of all the apostles. And yet, even though he was on the bottom of the list and below the bottom of being worthy, and he calls himself the less than least because he was the one who tried to kill the church, that's why he gave himself that title. He says, even though I tried to kill the church, I was commissioned with the privilege, the grace of proclaiming the boundless riches of Christ. Now that is an interesting word because Paul made it up. It didn't exist in the Greek language, so he found a couple big words and put them together. So boundless could be translated measureless or it could be translated incalculable, can't be calculated, can't be measured, get the strongest computer in the world, fastest hard drive or fastest processor, biggest hard drive, 
And no computer can handle, can store the boundless proclamation that Jesus Christ comes to say, I don't want to condemn you, I don't want to punish you, I want to forgive you, and I want to use you. That can't be measured, how great that news is. I don't want to condemn you, I want to bless you, and I want to use you to bless others. So what is this? Immeasurable riches that can't be measured. Well, fortunately, Paul tells us in the previous chapter, Ephesians 2.7, this is where he tells us what he's talking about. God raised us up with Christ, Ephesians 2, then verse 7, in order that, that in the coming ages, what are the coming ages? Well, that's code for forever. God raised us up, went after us, so that in forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So what's going to happen in forever? He might show, is what he's going to do in forever, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. God has saved you to be kind to you forever. It will take an eternity for God to show new, unending kindness to you for your pleasure. Paul said, I get to tell the world about that. And that is grace. So that brings us to mystery number four. The mystery of our audience. Who in the world am I preaching to today? I see Dan on the back manning the computer in our chat room. And I suppose there are people that are watching in Spartanburg, beyond other nations are watching, but who is my ultimate audience? Paul tells us who I'm preaching to today. Ephesians 3.10, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, should be preached to the who? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In all of scripture, there is not a, there's not a more important verse that shows the centrality of the church as does this verse in regard to what we do every week. So people who think that the church is optional or non-essential, good word in our day, <laughs> reveal that they don't have a clue about what God is doing in the world. It's the most essential of all activities that are occurring in this city this week. And every week we talk to, we've asked law enforcement, just want to make sure we're not overstepping our civic boundaries, but we tell them we believe we should meet because we are essential. And every week we come in, band singing five songs, and I'm preaching, and there's nobody here but these lovely humans at number about ten. And we're putting all of our effort into this because of Ephesians 3.10 that I'm not preaching to chairs. I'm not even preaching to Spartanburg. I'm preaching, I'm not even preaching to the internet world. I'm preaching to 
the powers and beings in the heavenly places. That is the mission of the church. Paul says in verse 10 that this message is a manifold wisdom. The purpose of my message today is to teach of the manifold, interesting word there, again, not a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament, multicolored, multi-detailed, multi-intricate. You so you could sort of think of what's going on, what's, what's our purpose in this thing called church. Imagine a canvas, a canvas that extends over all the earth. And on that canvas, we, the church, through our preaching, our singing, our teaching, our giving, and our praying, our serving, we are painting on this canvas a picture of Jesus Christ for all the powers and principalities and rulers and authorities to see. We do that, painting the beauty of the wisdom of Jesus and how he has chosen to save the world. A lot of times when I think about who is my audience, who's the audience of the church, I think about the, the 7.3 billion people who live on the earth, and I say, we should, with every fiber of our being and our speaking and our, our sacrificing and our serving, our suffering, we should do all that we can so that those who are watching us, the 7.3 billion people on the earth, could see and hear Christ. And that is true. That is so true, but it's only partially true. There's an audience beyond the citizens of earth, and it is the rulers and principalities of heaven. I used to grow up with this phrase, an audience of one. I've used it, and it's not like I'm, you know, not like I was a heretic in using it, but there's not just an audience of one today, because you would think an audience of one means God is my audience and I do all things for him. That's just being more biblical than the Bible. <laughs> it's, there's an audience of the angels, that's who this verse is talking about. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Every day, your life and words, together with the church around the world, are preaching a cosmic sermon to powerful spiritual beings who crowd the atmosphere from earth to heaven. And every day, you get up in the morning you read your Bible, they're watching. You pray, they're watching. You walk through your house and you open your blinds and you see your green grass and you thank the Lord for the color green and you open your door and you hear birds chirping. You thank the Lord for birds chirping and you, it dawns on you once again that you have shelter that's been paid for by a job that you've been allowed to learn and do. And you thank, the God, you thank God for his generosity to provide enough, enough money for living. And then out of the money that you've been given, you walk into a church and you give financially. You give back so that everyone on earth can hear about this God of grace who didn't condemn you but sent his son to forgive you and has blessed you with 10,000 other blessings. That message that you're preaching with your life, with your words and your, your body is being watched by rulers and the principalities all 
over the world. Angels, they marvel at our worship. They don't know this joy. They know joy. They don't know our joy. Angels have never, they don't know what it is to be lost and found. They don't know what it is to be guilty and forgiven. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch for me is. That's our song. That's not the song of the angels. We're the only ones who sing that. Because we're the only ones who know that. So they look and they say, we know joy. We spend our eternity praising God. We don't know that kind of joy. And they marvel at what they see the church. Sinners worshiping God. And that's what I think Peter meant when he said, even angels long to look into this kind of joy that we have. What is this joy? But I think this verse in, in Ephesians, uh, let's see if I can find it again. The manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities. I think those rulers and authorities, I think there's every piece of scriptural evidence to believe that it includes demons as well. We don't just proclaim our message in the presence of angels. We proclaim our message in the presence of demons because this phrase, rulers and authorities, is used just a few verses later in Ephesians 6.12 to talk about demonic forces that oppose the church. They're watching our message as well. They're listening to me preach. They're listening to you or they're watching you listen. So to good angels and to bad angels, all of them, we are Proclaiming the message of Christ. You know, it's easy to think that I, I know I could get an amen from every single person who's watching that. It's easy to fall into the trap to think that this world is about, you know, it's us, it's me. It's about my plans, my problems, my projects, and my pain. It's sort of, it's so easy to have everything revolve around you. And it's not true. This is not about you. It is some about you, but it's far greater than you. God loves you, but he wants to use you in far greater than your life and your, the boundaries of what you normally look at as the focus of your, of your, constant, of your concentration You know what's happening today with you right now? God has placed you in this arena called earth. In the middle of this arena of earth, from your singing, your preaching, your serving, your giving, your suffering, you are proclaiming, painting a picture of Jesus Christ and his worth to good angels and bad angels. What we're doing, just declaring his worth on canvas every single day. And you've got angels, you've got good ones and bad ones, warring with one another right now above this building, at war, all over the world, all over the city, all over, above your house, around your house, warring, and you feel it. That's why you fight. That's why you say things you wish you didn't say. Angels warring. Good angels trying to support you, bad angels trying to 
detour you from painting a picture of the worth of Christ. And through the church, God is showing to the world the infinite wisdom of God in His great act of sending Jesus Christ to die Sending Jesus Christ the King to die on a cross like a criminal. That criminals could live in heaven as a king. That's what God is doing throughout all of the world. So that's mystery number one. Mystery number two is that those who respond to that message are brought into the church. Which we said a minute ago, no matter, despite our diversity... Jews and Gentiles, Asians, Anglos, brown skin, white skin, blue collar, white collar. We all come into the church, no boasting. All the barriers that the world has put before us out there, hostility, hatred in here, in the church, every one of those barriers is broken down at the cross and they're on level ground below the cross. No boasting except in Christ who's accepted us, those who don't deserve to be accepted. And therefore, that's our motivation for accepting one another. That's mystery number two. There's a church where it all happens. And the mystery number three is in the church we celebrate what can happen to every shipwrecked life. Like the Apostle Paul throwing away his future. God stops him, causes him to be born again, reroutes the trajectory of his life to make him the most influential human being who's ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that in the church, and we disciple and we develop people in the church so they can become like the Apostle Paul, (laughs) once haters of the gospel, then proclaimers of the gospel. That's mystery number three, that God God picks up weak, flawed brushes and paints a masterpiece on his canvas. If there was ever a person, if there was ever a brush that you would have said, oh God, don't pick up that brush, it's the Apostle Paul. It's Saul of Tarsus. And God said, that's precisely the brush I want to pick up and paint the beauty of Christ to all the world. That's why Paul said he was the least of all the apostles. That's what gives us hope. When you say God can't use me, if he could use Paul, he can use you. Through the witness of your mouth and the service of your hands, you are painting a declaration that Jesus is so beautiful and holy and loving and just and sacrificing and triumphant that he is the only being worthy of worship in all of history and all the universe. And that's what you're doing with your life. You are painting You were declaring that he is the rightful king. You're looking for purpose in life? That's purpose in life. A little brush that God has picked up to paint a picture that is seen by all of the angels, good and bad, all of history, all of the universe. Our declaration that Jesus Christ is the rightful king over all power and authority. That's the purpose of life. Let me close with a quote by John Piper along these lines. Not one single stroke of your little brush is ever wasted. 
God is a wise painter. He doesn't make mistakes when he selects his brushes. Putting your little brush in the hand of the invisible, infinitely wise, omnipotent painter is one of the best places on earth to be. This is worth living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today, by your grace, you picked me up. One of the weakest, most flawed brushes that surely you would ever see laying around. And you picked me up. Today you said that you, oh God, are going to preach Ephesians through 3 through me. You're going to take the brush of my life. And paint on a canvas a sermon that's never been taught. Words that have never been uttered. And from this message and from this brush in your hand, joy is going to be proclaimed out of this building. Hope is going to walk through this parking lot, down these streets. It's going to be picked up by the molecules of air and it's going to fly over the state of South Carolina, over all the United States, over rivers and mountains and oceans. That message of the hope of Jesus Christ through the internet is going to land in Europe in England, Germany. It's going to travel eastward to Pakistan and Israel. The hope of Christ through the proclaiming of the Word of God, through the singing that we're about to enjoy of the Word of God, is going to be proclaimed right now, never before. Has this song been sung like this for the joy of people in India, in Mongolia, in Vietnam, Bangladesh, in Thailand, and in China. The message that anyone, no matter how flawed their life and how poorly they've used their brush in painting the wrong picture, today, Jesus Christ with his mighty and crucified hand is willing to pick up the brush and to paint beauty Holiness from a brand new brush, cleansed by the only paint that really matters, the red, beautiful blood of Jesus. So paint, God, paint the portrait of the gospel through this church, through families, through teenagers, through singles, through young and old. Paint the gospel now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.